Hey everyone, I'm Jose Hernandez and welcome to Behind the Backing Track for Outside and Music. Outside and Music is a media company and record label that connects jazz artists with their passionate fan bases. Please visit us at our website at outsideandmusic.com where you can see our artists and their recent releases, our podcasts, video interviews, and links to get in touch with us. Behind the Backing Track is a monthly podcast produced alongside Over Here by Big Boss Nick Vincer and Extended Harmony with music journalist Dan Gross. Covering music from TV, film, and video games, this podcast digs deeper into the inner workings of the composers, arrangers, editors, and engineers of the commercial music realm. Hey everyone, uh, I'm here today with the composer of Cuphead, Christopher Madigan. Chris, how about you just introduce yourself a little bit, where you're from, what you've been up to recently. Hey, uh, my this is Chris Madigan, and I uh, am the composer of Cuphead, as was stated. Uh, I'm based out of Toronto, and yeah, Cuphead, in terms of what I've been doing lately, Cuphead has uh, taken over the bulk of the last four years of my life, so it's nice that it's finally out, <laughs> and people seem to like it. And uh, basically, uh, I go back to a heavy freelance schedule. Uh, well, I've been doing that since for the past few months since the season started, but I have this week off and then back to another heavy uh, couple months of freelancing for the next uh, until the end of December. And then, uh, yeah. Awesome. So that's that's kind of what I've been up to lately. So what would you say your job description is currently as you say freelancer? More or less, uh, the, the bulk of the work I do is uh, orchestral percussion in Toronto. My main gig is with the National Ballet of Canada Orchestra. I play with them. And also I freelance with uh, various other groups, Toronto Symphony, uh, National Arts Centre Orchestra in Ottawa, other, other that kind of stuff. And I try to do as much, like I like playing a lot of jazz as well and other, other fun things, but I don't do as much of that as I would like, but there's only so much time also, so. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, composition is something that I've only done fairly or haven't done much of until uh, this project came along so I don't uh, unless I guess unless I have an actual project to work on I don't I don't uh, do it don't do any other composition just just for the sake of doing it so so I'm not doing any writing at the moment I guess oh okay okay that's the way to put it <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> tell me how you kind of worked with uh, MDHR and uh, how the Cuphead kind of idea started? So they started working on this game, I believe, in about 2012 or 2013. Uh, that's the whole thing about it. It started in 2010 or whatever, going around, which is not totally correct. Oh, okay. Um, but so shortly after... So I've Chad and Jared, uh, who are the, the two main heads of Studio MDHR and sort of the brains behind Cuphead, uh, I've been friends with them uh, since about grade five, grade four or five. So it's, you know, a little 20 or 25 years maybe. And so they started working on this game. And they didn't really know any other professional musicians. So they asked me if I was interested in writing some stuff for the game. I was hesitant initially because it's not really something that I've done much of. Or particularly in that I've always enjoyed big band music and jazz music, but I've never really uh, studied it that in depth. So uh, initially, obviously, the the game was a lot smaller than it became. I, you know, eventually, I think about a little over four years ago, I started. I did end up writing, starting to write music for the game, and uh, sort of grew slowly over time to become the much larger game that it is now. And that's, you know, that's how I got involved. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I got a cat here who's uh, <laughs> biting my biting my, uh, my cable. Here, you're going to have to get down. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, what's what, what's the yeah. cat's name? Uh, Petula. Ooh. She's, she's a, a barn cat from somewhere. But... <laughs> so... She's very, she's very friendly, but she can be distracting when you're trying to talk seriously about your art. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Chad is sort of, he said, he said this as well. Like, I think if any of us knew four or five years ago how much work Cuphead was going to be, we probably it never would have got started. I think it was <laughs> a lot, it was a lot smaller of a game, and like you know, originally it was going to be. 8 to 10 bosses maximum, so that would have been 8 to 10 big band tunes, which is not a small amount by any means, but mm -hmm. it's a lot less than we ended up uh, doing for the game. So, you know, 
at the time it seemed like a bit more reasonable of a project mm. and in terms of just overall scope yeah yeah so in terms of uh research and like development how did you guys was the idea of always that a 1930s animation style caricature was that always like in mind or was that just something that came through like uh pre-production uh well i mean the art side of it was uh i think they knew they wanted to make a game and they sort of knew they wanted to make a throwback to the games that they grew up playing and loved and they did try a bunch of different art styles and I think I think the way Chad explained it is as a joke they sort of did something because they also Chad and Jared grew up watching those you know bargain bin grocery store videos <laughs> which are always like the uh, you know was cartoons from that era so they kind of grew up watching that and I think it was like a joke that they sort of drew a few things in that in that style and every you know everyone they showed it to was, was like wow this is great you have to this is the style you need to to make your game in and you know Chad has said. That was when he realized, like, oh god, this is going to be a lot more work than we signed on, signed on for. <laughs> but, uh, but so yeah, so that's where visually it came from, and, and I think musically, Chad in particular always had a very strong uh, opinion about what he wanted. Uh, mm -hmm. Like he, a lot of those old cartoons, some of them have jazz in them. A lot of them don't, though. A lot of them are like that, that more like cartoony orchestral chamber orchestra kind of thing yeah and a lot of them even have like snippets of like actual orchestral excerpts yeah i mean that's very common i mean cuphead has uh i mean one of there's one of the tunes that has that anyways yeah and, which is kind of a throw there's the ride of the valkyries oh yeah which is <laughs> which is thrown in there and there's a little bit of uh strauss uh zarathustra 2001 towards the, the introduction to the last boss but, uh, yeah. you know, that was kind of a little, little tongue-in-cheek in a way. But he sort of could tell, I think, from early on that it wasn't... That that cartoony style wasn't what the game needed. Um, mm. he, he knew that the big band was going to be exciting. It was going to be, like, the exciting uh, and, like, up-tempo stuff that the game needed. So he'd, he'd done... Even before they asked me, he had done a lot of research, and he sent me some, some videos, uh, you know, like, some really up-tempo Cab Calloway stuff, sing, 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 obviously, and some other things, and he was like, this is the vibe that we're going for. And But he was also very conscious of the music in the games from the 80s that they loved, and how, um, you know, sort of pumping and exciting that that stuff is as well. Yeah. Uh, even though, obviously, it's not Big Ben, but it's, it's still... it's It drives the, uh, the excitement level. Mm -hmm. So... There was never much consultation with me in terms of like, what do you think is going to work? It was he said like, this is definitely what we need to go with. It's this style of just fast-paced, uh, what you know, big band basically. Yeah. And also like that's uh, so initially when the game was eight to ten bosses and that was kind of it. There might have been like an overworld hub or something, but it wasn't really going to be too many other like worlds or secondary things mm -hmm. uh, or characters. It was just what we're just going to worry about the the big band style, and then as the game expanded and there was was obviously the four world maps and some secondary characters, the shopkeeper, uh, Elder Kettle, tutorial level. Yeah. We kind of wanted to not uh, like I wanted to to maybe differentiate that those kind of things from what the bosses were. So a lot yeah. of that we ended up going towards the more ragtime sort of vibe. Some of it. You know, you get to the last, the last world, Inkwell Hell, yeah. and I thought, I thought, you know, even though it's maybe a few years later, I thought a, uh, a, a film noir kind of vibe would work really well for that. Mm. So everyone thinks that's James Bond, but that's, you know, James Bond got it from somewhere else, <laughs> in a way. So yeah, yeah, we try. I mean, we tried to, uh, like, we didn't, you know, we didn't want to be too anachronistic in terms of going like way outside of the style of, of the 30s or like going sort of too much too far beyond that but then we also didn't want to like lock ourselves into into that so there's a few there's a little bit of some bebop stuff in there sort of but not really yeah. for the most part it, for the most part if it wasn't something that existed by the late 30s then i tried to avoid using it hmm. okay so i mean and then you have some like there's a theremin in there but that was invented in 1928 so we knew that was okay, and uh, yeah. 
Um, so really quick aside, from from all those inspirations, what did you find yourself most compelled with? Like, uh, I guess in a musician type of sense, like uh, Sidney Bechet or like Arthur Tatum or all these other crazy kids. Oh, wow. Ellington, for sure. Yeah. Ellington was huge. Oh, okay. Um, his music is so... I'm a huge I'm a huge Bowie fan as well, mm -hmm. and I, I find that the, the two of them are the thing that I appreciate most about both of them is how uh, relentlessly unafraid that they of, that they were. Yeah. And you know, they were always they were prolific, but also for for better or worse, they didn't really care about. Though they didn't care about trends, but. Um, they were always searching and trying to do something more interesting, right? Yeah, that's true. So a lot of Ellington stuff, I mean, like, Ellington obviously was around for decades after after the 30s, but even that, that early Ellington stuff is so fascinating, and, like, his, his voicings are so, so strange compared to, like, pretty well anybody else Yeah. at that time. I mean, a lot of what I sort of found, I listened to, you know, thousands and thousands of, of tunes from that era. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that have a very distinctive voice. Uh, Ellington obviously is one of them. And then a lot of that music is fairly pedestrian in some ways. And it's just like, uh, you know, paint by numbers, dance hall music. Yeah. And it was it was functional and that, you know, it was, people want to go to the dance and not worry about it. But it wasn't really like sit down concert music, right? That's true. So, so for me, Ellington was a big one. Obviously, uh, Benny Goodman had a lot of really exciting kind of vibes uh, to his music, like literally and figuratively. <laughs> um, and Cab Calloway is also, I think, fairly obviously a, a big influence uh, on the game and on, particularly on the King Dice character in the game. Um, but also for, the, I mean, for the ragtime stuff, these are all pretty like I think standard answers. But Scott Joplin is. Uh, there were a lot of. A lot of composers writing ragtime music too, but no one really approached the the refinement or the elegance uh, that that Joplin had. Yeah, I definitely heard a, a bit of maple leaf, I think, in uh, the honeycomb. Uh, I mean, that's possible. I was listening to a lot of. I did. I, there was no like trying to be. I wasn't trying to make things too similar, but there's definitely like if you want to write something that sounds like a, a Joplin tune, you're gonna have to follow some some you know standard chord progressions yeah. and standard riffs and uh, that was always a challenge about you know we were very aware throughout the whole process when you're doing something that's when you're writing in a style that's super derivative of something like yeah. you're going to be forced to use a bunch of tropes and cliches that you didn't yourself invent yeah. and it's kind of like how do you how do you how do you take those and and make them your own as much as you can mm. And the thing is, it's not, if I didn't use those, which I had obviously no hand in creating in the first place, then it wouldn't have sounded like ragtime music, or it wouldn't have sounded like big example. Yeah, it would have just been a little bit less authentic, and then you have to think uh, the kind of, do I go a bit more generic, or do I try to make my own sound out of it? And in, in this case, the, the style uh, pervades the, the, the ingenuity there, I think. Yeah, you're you're sort of stuck. Uh, you you have to do certain things, or else it's not what you're trying to do. Yeah. So it was. I mean, it was it was a balancing act for sure with a lot of the stuff. You know, it'd be interesting, I think, to write music for an RPG or something where you have, you know, maybe a lot more freedom mm -hmm. to to sort of develop your own voice, and you could you could get away with a lot more things which are like, wow, it's really strange. Whereas <laughs> here here we're limited to like. You have to stay within a certain certain stylistic conventions. Mm -hmm. So so definitely, there's things on there which sound fairly Joplin-esque, but I tried my best to like not make it too Joplin-esque. You know, mm -hmm. I I definitely thought it was a bit more tongue-in-cheek, uh, as the same with the the writing uh, Valkyrie joke. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that one we knew that was going to be for a flying level, so I was like, well, this is. Obviously, you know, Apocalypse Now, uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of thing, and that's I think that tune in particular is, it was used in a bunch of. I mean, it was obviously used in one very famous Bugs Bunny cartoon, but I think it was yeah. used a few times, probably. So, so it just kind of was like, I think it makes sense to use this. Mm. Yeah, and so, as you were saying, for writing for this game, like 
I know you haven't written uh, terribly much, but did you find any difference in uh, writing for this game instead of just uh, like impromptu pieces that like you've written for Marimba, for example, or just mm -hmm. like regular concert hall pieces? What did you find yourself uh, trapped in a box somehow in some aspects? Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, but I, I tried not to, uh, I guess, worry about that so much. Mm. The stuff that I wrote, I mean, the, pretty well anything else I've written, I wrote a couple um, kind of pop tunes, uh, or like weird like trip-hop tunes for a band I used to play with, and those aren't really available for public consumption, but literally everything else I've written mm -hmm. is up on my SoundCloud page, and, you know, that marimba stuff is just like, I just had to write some some ambient background music, and that was it was fun to do that. Yeah. But it was it was quite a bit of freedom in a lot of ways. Mm. This was definitely the most restrictive writing I've ever done. But that's also like it's good to have limitations in some respect because it, it kind of uh, forces you to to not have such an uh, open palette that you can't you don't even know where to start. Mm. Like it was the 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 first a good example of this would be um, Inkwell Isle One. Which was the first ragtime tune, I believe, that got written for the game, and that was maybe there was only going to be the one overworld map. Oh, okay. And so that, so I wrote that tune and kind of thought not too much of it, and then as we needed more and more things, there was going to be a couple more overworlds. So then I wrote the Inkwell Isle Two theme and the Elder Kettle theme, which originally was going to be a map theme, and you know, it I ended up taking there's that four note motif. From Inkwell Isle One, yeah, which, ba -da, ba -da, ba -da, ba -da. yeah, that's all you know. That's all it was, and I was just like, it made sense to me to use that. It's just so simple. It's like nothing, right? It's four notes, but yeah. that was already that was ended up becoming this great jumping-off point for all of the other sort of secondary themes in the game because it it gave you a place to start, mm -hmm. and which is in a lot of cases, I think, what you sort of need. To, to focus the creative process, I guess. Yeah, for sure. So, so yeah, having that, I was like, this limits me to to using this kind of this riff in the piece. So, I know I have a jumping off point. There. So that I mean that kind of worked out really well in a lot of ways because that that theme ends up even if it's not super noticeable, it kind of ends up pervading a lot of the, uh, the well, it's in all the map themes and yeah. the secondary character themes and stuff. And you know, it was just a it was nice nice to have it as a as a place to start and it was totally accidental that it, it that that ended up becoming that right i just went i went back to the first world map theme like okay well, what's the rip in here we'll <laughs> use this we'll use this for the next one and then it became what it was i think uh emily reese maybe she did i interviewed with her a few weeks ago and i think she referred to it as the inkwell theme so i'm just going to call it that from now on which is a great you know that four notes is the Inkwell theme. Yeah, I was definitely yeah. gonna ask a uh, follow-up if that or Elder Kettle was written first, but you answered that question. <laughs> that me. that was written first, and then Elder Kettle uh, and Inkwell to the six eight march were kind of written at the same time. Yeah. And Elder Kettle came about because I was reading that. Well, I was I was I wanted I was trying to like how many more variations of ragtime can we do? I was going through like the Scott Joplin uh, collection. Yeah. And he had he had a few six eight rags in there, and I think he has three or four uh, ragtime esque waltzes. So I was like, okay, this is great. This is some other ideas to avoid getting too repetitive sounding. And originally there was going to be uh, a water. I think originally when Chad was like, there's going to be now more than one world. I asked him if there was going to be a, like some sort of water world map. And originally there was going to be, and then that didn't totally materialize, but. I was reading that 33 and a third book on Koji Kondo's Super Mario music. Yeah. And they pointed out in the book, which I've never, never really realized before. Probably, I mean, it's been two decades since I've played any Mario game, but um, it, whenever there's a water world in Mario, it's, uh, it's a waltz theme. So I was like, oh, this will be great. I'm going to write a ragtime waltz for the, the water world. And that ended up becoming Elder Kettle's theme. But, but those were kind of the first three times that got used, and then we needed the fourth world map theme, and we needed the tutorial theme, and we needed some other other things. So it was just we had that 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 uh, motive to use, nice. Which was which was great. It made things a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm reading uh, David and Goliath right now by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. And uh, he 
it's funny because he talks about the same thing in there, like about how sometimes having limitations is uh, like I, I just finished this chapter on on uh, dyslexia, and you know, a lot of people who have dyslexia are forced to compensate for it, and they get really smart in other areas. Mm -hmm. And so, I think the question he asks is, if if you were a parent, would you wish dyslexia on your child or not? And pretty well, nobody would. But he asks, you know, maybe maybe you should. Maybe that would be a good thing because it would it would force them to uh, to really sort of you sit down and read. You don't just skim over. You really gotta like absorb every sentence. You know? Yeah. So for sure, it's an interesting. But it's just that concept of of limiting yourself um, can can really help clarify where you're trying to go and create a sense. I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, so how was it working with uh, the uh, Boss Canada? Is what you said? Uh, oh, the Boss Brass. Yeah. It wasn't officially. Uh, so sorry, did we talk about this before the interview started, or yeah, should we, I... we talked about this a little bit before, so. Okay, I'll, I'll maybe give a bit of background <laughs> then, yeah. So, I think uh, when we started writing the music, you know, for a few moments we were like, well, all we can really deal with is MIDI music probably. Well, you know, I'll make the tracks in Sibelius, we'll get a good MIDI pro, like some MIDI samples. Mm -hmm. And then hire, you know, a real rhythm section and an actual somebody to solo over top of it, and it'll be a lot cheaper than hiring the full band, because originally, you know, it was self-funded completely yeah I mean it still sort of was but this was before Microsoft um, picked it up and gave us some exposure with it mm. and and then as soon as it sort of as soon as that e3 trailer happened a couple years ago we knew that we were gonna really have to go all out and go big on it so as soon as we knew, as soon as we decided that we were going to hire a legitimate big band to play it, my mind immediately went to, well, we got to hire. It's not, it's not actually the Boss Brass, but we got to hire whoever we can who played in the Boss Brass. Yeah. And the Boss, the Boss Brass uh, was super important. Uh, I mean, arguably Canada's most well-known big band from the late. I think they formed around '68, and I believe that they broke up around. 1999 or 2000 yeah it's like and just about three decades. yeah and the leader uh rob mcconnell i believe he passed away in 2010 but he led other he led other uh, bands throughout the uh the first 10 years of this uh of the 2000s but um so there i mean they were based out of toronto rob mcconnell's boss brass super important band and i was just we didn't hire the 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 official it's not called the boss brass but most of the, the the guys we were able to get were members of that band, and that was super important um, because, particularly with this kind of music, and it's the same with orchestral music, I think too. Like, you can hire great freelancers and put together, you know, a, a killer pickup orchestra mm -hmm. uh, or killer pickup group of any sort, but there's something that you, you can't. You can't fake that kind of synergy or familiarity with each other's playing. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something that only comes with, with decades of, of having experience with playing with each other. And so the Boss Brass players, uh, that was the thing. It was like, we need to hire players who are obviously great musicians and great readers, but it needs to sound like it's been a cohesive unit for a long time. Like, that was sort of super important. Yeah. So, so we were just very lucky that we were able to. Uh, this is for this is for the big band stuff. The ragtime band was different, but for the big band, we were very lucky that the players that we were able to get have, for the most part, known each other for decades, played together in this like legendary group, and uh, I think it really sort of comes across that it wasn't just a bunch of random freelancers that we hired, but. We hired these these players who who knew each other, and they had. I think you can tell um, from listening to it. Anyways, like they were definitely. It was hard music, and it was you know, as someone who's not a schooled big band composer, a lot of it was fairly awkward. Hmm. And so, but they they didn't complain about anything. Came in, had awesome attitudes. You could tell. I think it sounds like when I listen to the recordings, it sounds like they were having fun. <laughs> yeah, you can tell that. 
Yeah, and I think that, yeah, it comes across, and I think that's super important, and I don't know if it would have been quite the same if we had not been able to get that particular group of players together. Yeah. So, very fortunate that they were all around and available to do it. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So, like, so it was uh, a 17-piece band, right? Like, four trumpets, uh, four bones, and then five saxes. Uh, no, it's 13-piece. Uh, 13? Okay. Yeah, so. so three trumpets, two bones, four saxes. Okay. I kind of I kind of just based that on I found like uh, one of the videos that Chad sent me from the, the very early days. He found this group in in New York City called uh, Spinch Giordano and his Nighthawks, and they're uh, they're great. They play um, they're the, it's a contemporary band, but they play uh, 30s big band. Mm. And it just so happens the video he sent me that was the the uh, configuration of the band. So I was like, I guess we'll use this. <coughs> so. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, <clears throat> I think having a third bone would have been super useful, but I, I feel that that configuration is actually a lot closer to what the big bands would have been in the 30s. I think it was around the 40s and 50s where they started to expand to that more modern yeah. um, size. But but I you know any I guess any touring band in the 30s were you know you want to tour as a band you need a certain amount of players, but also you're living through the depression, so you don't have like there's not so much money. Yeah. hire this this giant unit so so I, I i mean i think it was actually reasonably authentic uh, in terms of the instrument configuration yeah yeah so i mean somewhat anyways i hope but <laughs> for for you know if 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 we if if there's a second game at any point which is not for sure or anything i'm not going on record as, as saying that but uh I would definitely hire a, a, a third bone and probably another trumpet for sure. Mm. So there, there were a couple of charts that had a lot of vibe playing. Were you doing that, or was someone else doing it? I, I played the, the the written out vibraphone parts. So anything that's in unison with something else. Okay. Um, that was me. But I don't. Uh, I'm not a, a jazz soloist at all. But fortunately, there's a gentleman in Toronto, uh, Mark Duggan, who is awesome. He played all the vibe solos. Obviously, he sounds killer yeah. um and he's he's great he's, he does a lot of he does a lot of orchestral work too and uh plays a lot of uh brazilian choro stuff in toronto he's really like a, he's, as a, he's a fantastic all-around musician yeah. and he does a lot of he does a lot of composition too he writes some really interesting stuff so but we were you know fortunately um he was around and available for it and uh, i wish i could play like him but <laughs> so, but I, I played all of the, there's a lot of the percussion and, you know, the, the written out vibes parts mm -hmm. and the xylophone and stuff that I played myself because yeah. I felt bad giving those, some of those vibes parts to anybody else because they're so awkward. Uh, so I was just like, I'll just do it myself. And it's just easier, it was, you know, easier for me to just go into the studio and, and lay it down than try to mm -hmm. hire somebody to do it, you know? Yeah. So it just, it kind of just made... A bit more financial sense in a way. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, you were you said you you were kind of attuned to the uh, level design of like each of these uh, charts. So did you know like were you given like uh, kind of character sheets of these like bosses before like they're like attacks or like style of like uh, movement? Uh, in in some cases, Chad said like. This is what you know. We need to, uh, something for this boss or something for this boss. But in a lot of cases, things were just being written. Like both things were being developed simultaneously. So I was, and I, you know, a lot of the tunes I was just writing. I was like trying to write something exciting, and then I would send it to Chad, and he would say, "Okay, well, this is going to work for this boss." So it wasn't written specifically for uh, any particular boss. Some of them, some of them are, are are very obviously, like the train music was obviously written for the train. Yeah. The final boss music was written uh, specifically for the final bosses. Um, the frogs music was kind of written specifically for the frogs. There's a little the hidden hidden homage in there, which no one has found yet. Um, <laughs> well, guess... But a lot of it, like the the dragon music, it was just something I had written. And then at some point, Chad said, "Okay, this is going to work great for the dragon," so we just put it on there. Nice. So yeah. Well, I guess I got to go uh, listen back to the the, the pair of frogs. And see what I can find. <laughs> yeah, I, I've maybe already given away too much. I don't know. Uh. 
<laughs> um, it's probably best that it's it's so subtle that no one has found it. That's fair. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, some of it was written specifically, and some of it wasn't. And we didn't try to. I think we sort of knew with this the way that we were going to be recording it that we couldn't really. You know, like a lot of games, you're you're able to if you're doing something that's more ambient or you're making like MIDI layers or whatever, like you can be a bit more following the dynamic of, of the boss or the level. Yeah. And and we didn't really like we probably could have done that with this, but it seemed like a lot of extra work that didn't really need to happen. I think we were just more concerned with going for the vibe of the whole thing yeah so like just having having the big band band music playing is is good enough we don't need to like use it to telegraph attacks or to get faster as the boss gets more intense a couple of the tunes do that anyways but yeah. just because compositionally it made sense not because we were trying to uh follow the uh the on-screen action okay and I mean, I, I think it, it seems like it worked. I think when we finally started implementing these into the into the bosses, we were pleasantly surprised how how well it did work and didn't didn't need that more direct, like, obviously this music is following the, the form of what's going on. That wasn't really necessary. Yeah. So... Sorry, maybe, I may be getting ahead of your, uh, your question. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, you're definitely... <laughs> pulling a couple ones under me, but that's totally fine. <laughs> so, did you expect this game to be difficult in terms uh, you of mean the... actually playing oh. the game? Oh yeah, that was always uh, that was always their their thing. They wanted to make the game. Uh, it was a throwback to the games that they enjoyed playing. Mm -hmm. All the Gunstar Heroes, Alien Soldier. I tried playing Alien Soldier. God damn it, it's way like. <laughs> I, I didn't. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of those games, like they're super challenging, but they don't. They're not necessarily like fun, fun. Yeah. In my subject, you know, subjectively, in my opinion, and uh, you know, the controls are okay, but maybe not great. Mm. So, I knew the game was going to be difficult. Um, I don't think it's nearly as difficult as any of those old, whatever Super Master Genesis games that they're basing it on. Yeah. Uh, I beat it in like 13 hours, and I'm I'm not a good <laughs> I'm not a good uh, boss rush player. So I you know it's uh, hopefully that I think part of the hope is that it inspires people to want to maybe revisit those games because I know I know there are games coming out now which are purposely trying to do that, but this is just another uh, another version of that where. Ideally, people will play it and say, "Okay, like I, I appreciate fair difficulty in games." Mm -hmm. And the, I, when I played through it, I was stunned with how well. I mean, I knew that they were going for this, but when I finally got to play it, I was like, the uh, the conscious way that the game shows you how to get better, mm -hmm. and the way that it it's telegraphs those, you know, like the attacks to you. Yeah. Like it's not. I know it's been said a zillion times, and it's this is this is the statement from the developers. But it's tough but fair, and that's when you die. In most cases, it is your own fault, and you will learn from it. So, <laughs> yeah. So it is. It's it's challenging, but it's. Uh, I think they wanted to do the same thing with the game. They wanted to make a game for themselves, but they wanted to expose people to this type of gaming again. And it was the same thing that I wanted to do with the soundtrack. Like, and people have said this to me, and it kind of makes it all worthwhile in a lot of ways. But I wanted it to—I wanted the soundtrack to stand alone as an album. But I wanted people who had maybe didn't think they liked jazz or uh, never really bothered to check it out mm -hmm. to to say like, "Oh, this is you know." I'm now I'm interested in, in actually like going back and listening to the stuff that inspired you or checking out albums made by the musicians that are on the soundtrack and seeing what seeing what stuff they're on and I've had uh, quite a few people say that to me now too like I'm interested in checking out more jazz and that's you know to me that's like other than doing a good job because two of my friends 
or other than doing the best job I could do, because two of my friends asked me to make music for their game, I also wanted to like respect the art form and hopefully expose people who maybe were not familiar with it to this classic and very important era in, in American music. So, yeah, that's sorry. I, I might have went way off topic there. I don't <laughs> no, that's <laughs> totally fine, dude. Like I totally respect that and. You know, I think that's what we're trying to do every single day. Uh, for me, at least, I'm trying to make the upper echelon of composition a bit more accessible to audiences that might be turned away from it for, you know, one reason or another. Mm -hmm. It's it's like too dense or like maybe they just don't get it for some reason. And that's kind of my goal. So I can see exactly where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, jazz is not, I think, you know, people think jazz is this dirty word. And it's not really. <laughs> it's just like, if, you know... If you don't like it, you don't like it. Like, if you objectively sat and listened to it and said, I don't like this, then that's fine. But at least you've given it a chance. Mm -hmm. And I think I think there's a lot of a lot of people who maybe don't know that they would like it because they've never really listened to it. Mm -hmm. So so I tried to make the soundtrack. It needed to be it needed to be Big Band, but it also needed to fit in the video game on the sort of the quirkiness scale as well. But ho hopefully people want to delve, uh, you know, deeper into what is essentially 120 or 130 years of musical history right there, you know? Yeah. As you said, you're a performing musician, freelancer. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the, I guess, kind of workflow in, involving, like, working with uh, the Canadian Ballet, you said, or the Toronto Ballet, was it? Uh, the National Ballet okay. of Canada. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's... Uh, the ballet itself for the orchestra is only... It's a full-time organization, but the orchestra is only in season there. Uh, four months out of the year. Okay. So it's November, December. We start next week, and we go solid till December 31st, and then we're there in March, and we're there in June. And it's a full-size, professional, uh, fantastic orchestra, and we play in the pit for the uh, the ballet productions, and it's when it's in schedule, they're hectic weeks, and you know, the music is always uh, challenging. And it's you know it's an interesting uh, it's a symphony orchestra, but it's very different than playing uh, symphonic concerts because you, you know every night different casts uh, do different things and require different tempos. And you're all you like you have to just watch the conductor like a hawk. You can't you can't ever let your focus lag because you never things are always uh, there's a lot of ebb and flow. Whereas in a in a symphony concert in a proper concert setting, things are maybe a bit more. I'm gonna say regular, but uh, you know, there's maybe there's, there's maybe less surprises. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit so, more preparation involved, at least mentally. Yeah, it's a, it's just kind of a different. Uh, it's interesting. It's like this exact same thing. It's a symphony orchestra, but mm -hmm. the the functions of both of those are uh, quite different. Yeah. So, but I mean, the 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 other stuff when I'm not in season with that, I do more concert orchestra work essentially. So and Toronto, we have Toronto's got such a uh, a rich and diverse music scene. It's you know, I, I feel I'm very happy to I feel fortunate to live in such a uh, an interesting city for that kind of stuff. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I've heard. Uh, actually, no, not I've heard. <laughs> I was going to ask you uh, what you guys are playing for the this ballet season. So this upcoming, actually, the next month is going to be awesome. We're doing um, uh, a, a new-ish ballet called The Winter's Tale. We we did the Canadian premiere two years ago, I think. I don't quite remember. Okay. Two or three years ago, and uh, we've taken it on tour a few times. And so this is this will be the second time we've done it in Toronto, though. And it's uh, it's fantastic. Um, it's based on Winter's Tale by Shakespeare. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Um, the, the staging is awesome, but the music is, for me, the music is incredible. It's by Joe B. Talbot, and he's uh, an English composer, and writes really interesting, interesting stuff. But uh, what's cool for us is there's a five-piece banda that's on stage, and so I'm actually part of that. I'm not in the pit, oh. and we're on stage uh, for all. Not the entire ballet, but we're on stage at least once during each of the three acts. And we sort of interact, like we play... Typically when you have on stage banda stuff, there's a lot of this in, in opera. Mm -hmm. 
you'll have on stage or you'll have off stage musicians. Mm -hmm. But what they're doing is not totally related to what's going on in the orchestra pit. Yeah. Like it's it, musically, it's it's uh, supposed to be like something else going off in the distance. Yeah. And this is really interesting because our part is actually integrated with what the orchestra's doing, but we're also interacting with what's going on on stage. Mm. So it's really neat, um, and it's the it's fantastic music, and it's that one's a lot of fun. And then after that, we're doing a ballet called Nijinsky, which is uh, so it's a John Neumeyer ballet, and he's uh, ex exceptionally fantastic uh, choreographer. And I don't know how old I don't know if this is he's been a choreographer choreographing for a long time. I don't know how totally recent this one is, but we've done it, I think, twice before here in the past five years. And it's about uh, Vaslav Nijinsky, the um, early 20th century Russian dancer and choreographer. And his he sort of had a, a really interesting... Uh, uh, it's, it's very sad, but it's he sort of descended into madness. And uh, But it's a super... A super intense ballet, but the music is fantastic. It's uh, Shostakovich viola sonata, a movement from that, and some Chopin Ooh. stuff. But then, but then for the full orchestra, it's uh, Scheherazade in the first half. Okay. And then Shost all of Shostakovich Symphony Eleven. Okay. And, uh, which is the second half, which is like my favorite orchestral piece, pretty well of all time. <laughs> so it's and it's just un it's unbelievably intense. But uh, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And so that's November, and then December is uh, four weeks of Nutcracker, basically, which is always <laughs> it's, it's, it's so much fun. It's such a great uh, it's a great score, and it's always challenging. So and it's kind of it's neat playing Nutcracker there because it's such a family vibe there. Mm. You know, like everyone's always bringing snacks or treats, and every you know the audience is all families and kids. And yeah. it's, uh, it's really it's actually quite nice. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, so that's uh, the next couple months is for me is doing that. And that's that's enough work that I would probably, in my downtime, I'll try to take it as easy as possible. But. <laughs> yeah, I can totally understand that. Mm -hmm. um, so were there ever times where, I guess, what when did you win this job? Uh, I've been in the section for almost eight years now. Okay. I think 2010. So you kind of won it a bit after you got out of school. Yeah, it was the year after I got out of school. It was just like incredibly good luck. There was an audition in the city that I wanted to actually live in mm. for a, a job that I actually wanted. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm very fortunate to uh, to be there for sure. And also, it's like doing. It kind of allowed me the. Uh, enough flexibility with schedule and finances that um, I was able to, like, not having to, to work a full-time job yeah. uh, allowed me to really commit to doing the Cuphead music for the past four years, too. Mm. Um, without, yeah, like, without the ballet and other freelancing work, which is, like, schedule is always kind of sporadic, but it, it's generally a decent amount of free time, for better or for worse. I would never have had the... Uh, otherwise have had the time or the energy to commit to doing the Cuphead soundtrack at all. It was kind of, it was very fortuitous in that respect. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know this was like eight years ago, but how was the uh, audition experience? Well, auditions are never particularly fun. <laughs> um, I've done many auditions in my, most most symphony players, classical players, like, yeah, nobody wins. Most people don't win a job on their first few auditions, and auditions are uh, notoriously the worst thing, you know, if you ask, if anyone is listening, just ask anyone who's ever done an orchestral audition how much they enjoyed it, and it's, uh, so, but when, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's like months and months of work, it's years of preparation, really, but then once the audition gets announced, you usually have a couple months to prepare for it, Yeah. so you prepare for, you do only that for a couple months, and then you have ten minutes to not, not totally blow it, so, like, the, the pressure is, like, the worst. So were all the all were all the rounds in one day, or was it like a several day thing? I mean, some auditions are uh, over two days. Last uh, Toronto Symphony audition I did was over a couple of days. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it depends on how many candidates they have showing up. Okay. But but the audition that I won at the the ballet was I was there for almost twelve hours, I think. It was uh it was yeah it was remarkably long. But typically they don't go that long, and that one was just. 
they they ended up having more rounds than they were expecting, and um, so so but you know you get to like that last you do a third round and then wait around for a bit and you just like I don't know I hadn't really eaten I had a massive headache and I'm just like uh so yeah I mean it worked I, it worked out um, but it was it, you know it's challenging. So, you said you were reluctant to uh, work on uh, music for Cuphead. Was it a reluctancy of, like, I can't do this, or, like, thing? Or was it just uh, a reluctancy of just, like, the medium in general? I mean, they were like, we want you to write eight or ten big band tunes. And my initial thought with response was, well, I've, I've literally never done this before. And <laughs> why would why don't you find somebody who, uh, you know, actually does this? And... You know, I think the thing is, uh, partially it was just that they literally didn't necessarily know anybody else. And, you know, they weren't in a position to... Uh, they were sort of lucky in a sense, because I was willing to work somewhat pro bono. Like, if they hired... Because we were friends, right? So we were like, you know, once the game comes out, we'll sort of we'll figure out finances then. But at the time, there was... You know, if they had hired someone who's actually a freelance composer they would have had to pay them on a regular basis yeah and you know they you know early on it was a very small project and that was just financially not really an option i think that's true so i was reluctant but i was also it was kind of i was like this is an exciting opportunity just the, the ability to sort of use that as like a, a learning experience mm -hmm. i knew was fine and also like there was never any there was always this looming deadline, but there was never any like rush. There wasn't like we, we want you to do this thing you're not comfortable with, and you have six months to finish it. Like you know, we knew that there was like enough time to sort of figure it out. Yeah. So, and I think I think the thing is also right before they had asked me sometime in the summer of 2013, and I think I started writing near the end of that summer. I was I was going going to go back to school to do a master's in jazz. That was my plan because I wanted to be in a position to, to, to study it more in depth. And you, when you're in school, you're sort of forced to do that. <laughs> and so I was, I was kind of like, well, I'm also like, you know, time-wise, I'm going to be trying to juggle a freelancing schedule and going back to do a master's and doing this. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know how that's going to work. But so I ended up really only doing. I did a year of uh, my master's, and I was like, even without the game, because I don't think I did really much writing that year. Mm -hmm. um, even without the game, I was like, I'm way too busy. I can't, I can't continue the, going back to school. Uh, but you know, I definitely learned just being there for that year and taking those the, the theory classes that I took, and there was, uh, you know, some orchestration work and stuff, and that was it. Ended up being super useful, so I'm glad I went because uh, that it all benefited Cuphead in the long run. Yeah. But but you know, it was it was a reluctancy of lack of experience and lack of. of time to a certain extent at that point but it was you know i was able to these kind of challenges are if you look at them from the standpoint of this is going to be a really uh, valuable learning experience mm -hmm. then they're kind of exciting in that respect yeah yeah for sure so so take take any gig that comes along it's like a good <laughs> <laughs> That's like the freelancer's advice, like never turn down a gig, but never. you know, I'm happy never turn down a gig. <laughs> never. At least when at least when you're starting out, I think that's uh, what they say. But yeah, for sure. But I I'm I'm very happy to have uh, it's in, it's so I've done a lot of reading over the past couple of years too on the creative process. Mm -hmm. And partially for my own benefit, but part like I was just more interested to see what other people in the creative arts like what their approaches were. And so, you know, there's dozens of books on that subject, and they sort of branch out into ideas of like what makes talent and what doesn't make talent. And, and that's how lately I've been reading lots of Malcolm Gladwell because one of the books I read is like talking about a study that he did. So I ended up just reading about his stuff. But but I came across uh, a really good quote by Dorothy Parker, who's an uh, she was an American early mid 20th century poet, and. Uh, somebody had asked her about the writing process and and she has like her quote is is perfect because i was like wow this totally kind of sums it sums it up for me but uh she said i hate writing but i love having written <laughs> and it was kind you know that sounds a little harsh like i didn't hate the writing yeah. process but it was always it was always a challenge it was never easy and you would you would have these breakthroughs and you you know 
come up with this great riff for a tune and that makes it all worthwhile, you know. But that's, those are few and far between. Like, there was a lot of studying and a lot of preparation and a lot of throwing away of ideas. Yeah. And so, like, it was never really easy. It was fun, but it was challenging. But when you have the finished product and you're, like, I'm, for the most part, very happy with the way everything turned out, it's like, I get what she's saying. The, the end result makes all of the laboriousness and challenges worth it, I think. And I, and I, you know, I love having done this soundtrack now. Whether or not I would want to subject myself to something that difficult again, <laughs> you know, I need a bit of I need a bit of a break. But true. Yeah. Um, there's a question in here: uh, Is the soprano saxophone a real saxophone? <laughs> uh, it is. It is, and we were. I, I was debating using it on the soundtrack because also that Vince, Vince Giordano's Nighthawks group they use soprano saxophones in that. So I was like, it's kind of a cool sound, but we typically, I think, ended up using um, clarinets whenever we wanted the soprano sax instead. So I I love this. The soprano sax is awesome. When you hear someone like Coltrane playing it, it's killer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not. It's not. Maybe it's not super common. I guess. I mean, Sidney Bechet played one as well. But uh, I don't know if he played one in the in the early days. He might have played one later in his life. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Chris, so much for uh, coming on and uh, just having a little chat with me. Hey, my pleasure. My website is. Uh, chrismadigan.com K-R-I-S-M-A-D-D-I-G-A-N Probably easier just to Google Cuphead Composer and uh, <laughs> find it that way, but the the, uh, the vinyl is out through IM8Bit and I know that the first pressing sold out, and we were very happy about that but they're doing another another run, which will be available in first quarter next year and it's uh, if you haven't checked it out, it looks awesome and it sounds great and or if, if you want to check out the soundtrack uh the digital soundtrack without if you're not interested in the game it's on it is available on bandcamp and should be up on itunes and spotify any day now we're just waiting for that to to get finalized but yeah i definitely so. i definitely already uh, bought the soundtrack from steam <laughs> so, oh yeah yeah um i think on, i think on steam you it's only available as dlc if you buy the game so yeah if there's people who like really don't want to play the game or don't have Steam, you can still you can still find it on uh, on Bandcamp for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But everyone should play the game because the game is killer. Yeah, the game really is a good time. <laughs> I'm like maybe like nine hours in with a friend, and we're going no items because that's just how we roll. And it's, oh, nice. It's we just got to the third island, and it's it's painful. You gotta have smoke dash at least. No, nothing. Oh man, smoke dash is smoke dash is the best. But that's just me. <laughs> hey everyone, thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, the first episode with Sam Gosner and Simon Dalzell dealing with instrument sampling and audio recording will be available in the links down in the description. Otherwise, I think that's all I've got, and uh, I'll see you guys next month. <laughs>